following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, here we go, church. Today is the day after nine months of journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, we at last come to this final passage of the greatest sermon ever preached, in which Jesus is going to give us a concluding warning. See, he's already told us that there's a path that leads to death, and there's a path that leads to life. There's a tree that bears good fruit, and there's a tree that bears bad fruit, and is cut down and thrown in the fire. He's told us that not everyone who calls him Lord will be in the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. And now, in light of all of that, he gives us one final warning. He tells us a storm is coming. And it's not just a little dust-up or a little blow-over or a minor squall. No, it is a storm to end all storms. And the storm is coming for you. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7, 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You know, I was brushing up on a little Edgar Allan Poe this week. Any other Poeds in the house? Man, that cat was crazy, but he sure did know how to spin a yarn. And somehow with mere words, he could create a mood and a tone and set a story on this crazy, great, just perfect, steady suspense path and give an overwhelming sense of pending doom. So from the raven to the telltale heart, well, let's just say that these are stories you don't want to read right before bedtime. But one of the best examples of Poe's craft is in his classic short story, The Fall of the House of Usher, in which the narrator visits his friend Roderick Usher, who is on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown. He finds out that Roderick is, or we find out that Roderick is from a once affluent, though inbred family line that is now down to its final two members, him and his sister Madeline, who both still live at the family estate. As the narrator approaches the very old family home, he notices that despite its impressive architecture, there is an ever so slight crack going up the entire one exterior wall of the house, all the way from the top down to the foundation. And as the story progresses, we see this has become become a symbol, not only of the Usher house, but the symbol of the Usher family itself. What we find out, Roderick is very anxious about many things, but in particular, he worries about his sister, who is plagued by some mysterious disease that's causing her to waste away, not only in physical body, but also in her person. And in the story, the narrator sees her only once during his visit before he is told that she has died. But it would be some two weeks until she could be properly buried since the family plot was not yet ready for her. Therefore, Roderick decides to house her in the old family vault, which previous generations had called a dungeon. 
The narrator sees her in the coffin, even if Sisson putting her in the vault, they screw down the lid to the coffin and lock the iron door behind them. But seven or eight days later, the story comes to this crazy climax with the arrival of a vicious storm, during which the narrator himself begins to be overcome by nervousness and anxiety, having trouble sleeping in the midst of the howling wind and crashes of thunder and lightning. He even starts to hear what he says are low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals I knew not whence. Roderick soon comes barreling through into the narrator's room with mad hilarity in his eyes, it says. The narrator tries to calm him by reading him a story, but they both begin to hear what they say are from very remote portion of the mansion, a cracking and a ripping sound. As he continues to read the story to Roderick, they hear a most unusual screaming or grating sound, it says, and they feel a reverberation. As the storm rages on, Roderick is frozen in fear-induced trances. And as the narrator approaches him, Roderick says, Yes! Yes! I hear it! And have heard it! Long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it! And then he declares, We have put her living in the tomb! The narrator thinks Roderick in his grief has just completely lost his mind at this point, but Roderick insists, I tell you, she now stands without the door, and at that exact instance, with the rushing gust of wind, it says, the door blows open, and there stands Madeline, it says, with blood upon her white robes, and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. See, it turns out she had been entombed alive and had clawed her way out of the coffin and the vault, and she now flings herself onto her brother, who instantly dies of fright. Now, you can imagine the narrator, he just books it at that point, right? But the storm continues to escalate, and in what seems like a moment of supernatural judgment, a burst of light comes from behind him, and it is the light of the blood-red moon suddenly, um, suddenly coming through the crack in the exterior of the house, which is now widening and splitting the house in two as it collapses, putting an end to both the literal house of Usher along with the rather disturbing Usher family line as the rain continues to pour and the wind continues to blow. See, the house of Usher could not stand the storm. Despite its impressive and ornate architecture, despite its long and storied history, despite its generational wealth, one fatal storm and it all came tumbling down. Friends, I ask you this morning, will it be the same for you? Will your house stand on the day of the storm? Because a storm is coming for you. Jesus tells us that for both the wise and the foolish, the righteous and the unrighteous, a storm is on the way. He tells us that for the houses of both the wise builder and the foolish builder, that the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. See, both houses had to face the storm. And my friend, you will have to face the storm. The storm you may face may be some sort of trial or hardship in your life, the loss of someone you love or, someone, or something special, a betrayal of a close friend, an attack from an enemy, an unexpected layoff or illness or injury. Indeed, it's not a matter of if we will experience suffering, but when. See, every single person is either going into a storm, enduring a storm, or coming out of a storm. Because first of all, we live in a fallen world. 
The sin of Adam and Eve disrupted the shalom of the perfect creation and introduced into the cosmos not only sin, but death, disease, decay, poverty, destruction. But second, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been promised by Jesus himself that you will face hardship as his disciple. Jesus told us that we will be persecuted. First Peter 4 likewise tells us that we should not consider it strange when the fire of suffering comes upon us. Indeed, this side of heaven, storms will be the norm for the Christian. But storms will come and go for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. And these storms, Jesus tells us, will reveal who we are. Nevertheless, while Jesus' teaching certainly applies to the storms of life, Jesus is actually pointing us to a much more significant storm to which these other storms are but a foretaste. See, throughout Scripture, storms are often symbolic for the judgment of God. Jeremiah 23, 19 says this, Behold the storm of the Lord! Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. Ezekiel 13, 13, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. Proverbs 10, 25, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. So we see throughout the Bible this metaphor of storms and floods pointing to the judgment of God. But we, of course, we know the reason storms and floods are often symbolic of God's judgment throughout Scripture is because of an actual storm and flood that took place all the way back in Genesis. You see, after the fall of Adam and Eve, things just kept getting worse until the level of abominations on the earth became so extreme that Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Friends, this is true for all of us. As men and women, we were created to be God's image bearers. But as descendants of Adam and Eve, that image has been corrupted through and through to the point that we are utterly sinful. That is, we are sinners by nature. We're evil, and we're evil to the core. No one had to teach us how to lie. No, even as children, lies just poured forth from our lips. No one had to teach us to pitch a fit to get our way. No, we just did it. No one had to train us to take something that didn't belong to us. We just took it. No one had to teach us how to lust or how to get angry. No, these things came out of us as the overflow of our heart. And my friends, this breaks God's heart. Listen to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Friend, your sin grieves the heart of your maker. You were made to reflect his glory on the earth, but instead you take the precious gifts that he's given you and you worship them instead of him. Or you use them in ways that he did not intend. And this is only to your own detriment, by the way, because it only pulls you further and further away from what you were meant to be. And it breaks God's heart to see his creation in such a state. So look at verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Friends, this is what we all deserve. 
The wage of our sin is death. You don't deserve to be alive right now. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve to be separated from him forever. You deserve to die. Oh, but aren't you thankful for the next verse, verse 8, which says, but, (laughs) always look for that one, right? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, while God could not and would not leave sin unpunished, he still was not done with mankind. And God showed grace to Noah and his family, not because Noah was sinless, but because it says Noah walked with God. That is, in a wicked and perverse generation, Noah had faith in the one true God and sought to live a life that was pleasing to him. In that sense, he was called righteous and blameless. See, Noah had a relationship with God. And we all know how the story goes. God told Noah to prepare for the storm by building an ark. But notice, Noah was not spared the storm. Noah had to experience the storm of God's wrath and judgment just like everyone else. There was only one difference between Noah and his family and everybody else in his day. Noah had an ark. And as the rains came down and the floods came up, by God's grace, Noah was brought safely through the storm of God's judgment. See, no one can escape God's judgment. It is coming for us all. Romans 14, 12 says that every single one of us must give an account for our lives, every thought, every word, every action, every failure to act. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has has done. Every single person will one day stand before the Lord in judgment. The question is, will you remain standing? Because a storm is coming. My friend, Jesus wants you to stand on that day. That's what the whole sermon has been about. Not only has he been inviting us into the good life, into a life of flourishing and blessedness, inviting us back into that state of shalom, of peace with God. In particular, in this last section of the sermon, he's been warning us that if we do not receive his invitation, not only will we not flourish, but we will surely perish. Indeed, for all who do not turn from their sin and trust in him, their path will end in destruction. Their tree will be consumed by fire. Their house will surely fall. And my friends, those aren't just temporary setbacks from which you can recover. No, we are talking about eternity here. Separation from God forever. Darkness forever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Ever. And as terrifying as that warning is, he's not just giving it to us to scare us. No, he's telling us this to save us. 
Like a weather forecaster warning you of an approaching hurricane, he's not being mean or alarmist when telling you what is coming. He's telling you so that you can be prepared for the storm that is coming. And that's what Jesus does here as he tells us of these two builders. He's setting up a contrast, and he says there is this wise builder, and there is this foolish builder. But notice the contrast here is not about the house that they build. From the outside, both houses look great. Man, they could have had the same floor plan, the same gourmet kitchens and luxury bathrooms, the same landscaping. In fact, the foolish builder might even have what appears to be a superior home. In the same way, Jesus is saying the foolish and unrighteous man might have the outward appearance of flourishing, but appearances can be deceiving. See, someone may seem to be living the good life, but that good life is one storm away from shambles because of what lies beneath. See, all of us are making decisions each day for what we're building our lives on. Indeed, this has been the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. Every single choice we make reveals what we think is the good life, what gives us meaning, what gives us purpose, significance, what gives us achievement, happiness, and people fill their lives with and build their lives around all kinds of things. Money, fame, sex, success, power, relationships, fun, even religion. Some of these things in and of themselves may even be good when enjoyed in the right way and according to the right design, but in a fallen world, these gifts have been corrupted and they've been loved in the wrong order and outside of alignment with God's plan and his purpose. And ironically, all these things we've been seeking to find happiness in, if we are outside of Christ, are actually going to lead to our misery. See, we're structuring our lives around all kinds of things, trying to make ourselves happy. And in this sermon, Jesus has been showing us the path that will lead us to true happiness, to true flourishing. And it's not through stuff, it's through him. But as we've already seen, Jesus isn't just dealing with the big-time sinners here. Certainly, all that applies to those living it up in their licentiousness. The drunkard, the promiscuous, the liar, the gossip, the greedy, the lazy, the gluttonous, the thief, the murderer, the adulterer. But remember who Jesus has been primarily contrasting himself and his disciples with this whole time. It wasn't the big-time sinner. It was the self-righteous Pharisee, the one who looked really good on the outside, who showed up every week for worship, did all their religious duties, but whose heart was far from God. See, on the outside, they might look devoutly religious and righteous. They might even be doing lots of really good things, but they are not doing them out of love for God, but rather out of love for self. Not for the praise of God, but to receive the praise from others. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this final passage here. Here we see we have two houses that both look really good on the outside. But remember, throughout the sermon, Jesus has been showing us he's not just concerned with external appearances. He's looking into what cannot be seen on the outside, what is not visible to the eye. He is looking at the heart. And despite both of these houses looking really good above ground, there's a part of them that is unseen below the ground, and this is what makes all the difference. Because it turns out one house is built on a rock, and the other house is built on sand. Now, 
if you were looking at two houses that all things considered were pretty equal and one is built on rock and one is built on sand, which one are you buying? Yeah, you don't even have to think about that, right? I mean, that's easy. You're going to buy the one that's built on a rock. But if someone was willing to give you either a mansion that was built on sand or a modest home built on rock, which one are you choosing now? Well, now you might be tempted to pick the mansion because of all that it has to offer for the time being. But if you're smart and you're thinking long term, which one are you going to choose? You're going to choose the modest home on the rock. Why? Because however glorious that mansion seems right now in the moment, you know it's going to end in disaster. It is sitting on a shaky foundation. And that ain't good under normal circumstances, but it's even worse here because remember, a storm is coming. And that's precisely Jesus' point. Just like you might be tempted to take the wide and the easy road over the narrow and the hard road, he warns you, the wide road ends in disaster. So now he's telling you that house over there might look really good, but it is built on a foundation of shifting sand. So don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Make sure your house is on the rock because the rain is starting to fall. The wind is starting to blow. The hail is starting to pelt. The floods are starting to rise. And if the house of your life is built on a foundation of sand, it is all going to come tumbling down. That's why Jesus calls attention to the one striking difference between the two builders. Whom does Jesus call wise and whom does he call a fool? He says the wise one is the person who hears these words of mine and does them. The fool, he says, is the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Do you see the difference then between the two? Both hear the words of Jesus. Both have sat under his teaching. Both have been told what following Jesus is all about in this sermon. But one is going to walk away and live life as usual, while the other is going to turn from his old ways and walk in the way of Jesus. See, the difference here is not in the hearing. The difference is in the doing. Are you noticing a pattern here? This is what Jesus told us last week as well. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here, likewise, we see that on the day of judgment, the life that is going to stand is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. Listen, my friend, it's not enough to hear the words of Jesus. It's not even enough to believe the words words of Jesus. You must do the words of Jesus. This is the greater righteousness Jesus has been calling us to. Not just to look righteous on the outside like the Pharisees, but to actually be righteous. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. Not just to perform religious duties in his name, but to actually love him. And listen, you can't love him if you do not obey him. But wait, you might object. I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not by works. And yes, that is absolutely true. But remember, as we saw last week, biblical faith is not mere intellectual belief. As James informs us, even the demons believe and they shudder. 
See, it's not enough to know that Jesus is Lord. Even the demons acknowledge that. No, true faith submits to him as Lord. It's a classic example, but take this chair, for instance. I got this chair. I can tell you all kinds of things about this chair, all kinds of information. It has a steady metal frame, right? It's got this nice, comfortable red cushion on it, right? It is perfect for the activity of sitting, right? I can even give you a lecture on 10 reasons why I can be confident this chair is capable of supporting my weight. But at what point will you know if I actually believe what I am saying? It's not as I'm giving you those 10 points. It's what? When I actually have a seat. See, I can tell you I believe in this chair all day long. But what, how credible is my word until I put my faith into action? My friends... You can talk all day long about how you believe in Jesus, but the way you live will reveal what you truly think of him. You can say how much you love him, but the proof of love, Jesus says in John 14, 15, is if we keep his commandments. You can claim all day long that you are his disciple, but Jesus says the evidence will be in the fruit that you bear. You can say that he is your savior, but here Jesus tells us he's not your savior if he's not your Lord, and he's not your Lord if you don't do what he says. That's why the apostle James tells us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because James says if you are only a hearer, you are simply deceiving yourselves about being his disciple. You are make-believing faith because James says as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So when Jesus tells us the strong foundation of the wise man's house is obedience to Christ, he's not contradicting biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. No, he is showing us what faith actually is. Genuine faith in Christ is obedience to Christ. You can't say you believe and not do. You can't say that he is Lord and not follow. Oh, but many people will try. Indeed, lots of people go their whole life make-believing faith. They show up to church each week. They sing all the songs. They put money in the offering plate. They pray eloquent prayers, they memorize scripture, they teach lessons, they volunteer to serve, they go on mission trips. Indeed, when they stand before the Lord one day, they'll be able to just rattle off all the good things that they've done. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, mighty works in your name? But they will, all they will hear from Jesus on that day are these words, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, see, their faith was fake because it wasn't marked by obedience to Christ. Instead, they were living for themselves. They were trusting in themselves. Oh, they had a beautiful house, but it wasn't on a sure foundation. Their life was built on their will, not his will. Even when they were doing really good things, 
Because like the Pharisees, they weren't doing these things out of love for God. No, their lives, as pious as they appeared, weren't about making much of God, but about making much of themselves. And we see this in the lives of the Pharisees, in the fruit that they bore. Because when the God of the universe was standing right before their eyes in human flesh, they didn't bow down and worship him. They crucified him. See, they had the appearance of being devout, but their hearts were far from God. They did not do the will of the Father. No, despite all their so-called righteousness, they said to God, not your will, but mine be done. Friends, this is the heart of every sinner, whether rebellious or religious. We say, my life is all about me. This is the natural heart of every single one of us. Oh, but that can change today. Because every single one of us has a choice to make this morning. Is my life going to be about me or is it going to be about him? What will I do with this God-man they call Jesus? Because listen to how Matthew closes out this section of his gospel. After Jesus' final words in the sermon here, he tells us in verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Why? Why were the crowds so astonished? Why did they follow him? Because it says he was teaching them as one who had authority. And friends, there's a good reason why he was teaching as one who had authority. It's because he is the authority. See, he's not just commenting on the word of God. He is the word of God. He's not just giving us an interpretation. No, he is the interpretation and its sole interpreter. He is both the source of all things and their fulfillment. And he is not giving a recommendation or suggestion here. No, he is showing us the way. Indeed, he is the way. And no one comes to the Father but through him. See, Jesus has the authority. He is Lord over all. But here's the amazing thing. As astonishing as it is to see the divine authority with which he preaches, the people who heard the sermon that day were about to be even more astonished because this very one who gave these words of life and who reigned over the universe for all eternity and who was dwelling among them with one word, he was healing diseases, he was obliterating demons, he was turning water into wine and into walkways. Indeed, they would marvel and ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, but this king of glory would lay it all down to take up a cross. And the sinless son of God took on the sin of the world, bearing the punishment that we deserve, dying in our place. See, Jesus wasn't calling us to anything he himself was not willing to do. He did the will of the Father, even to the point of death. And listen, the will of the Father was to rescue you. See, left to yourself, you would never choose to do the will of God. You're a sinner by nature. Sinners, by definition, by definition, they sin every time. Even when we do something good, it's contaminated by our sinfulness. So if we're going to be made right with God, it's not going to come from you. 
No, you needed a righteousness that was not your own because there was nothing righteous in you. But listen, what you lacked, Jesus provided. Not only taking away your sin, but giving you all his righteousness. And if you will turn from your sin this morning, not only will he pay the debt that you owe, not only will he wash you white as snow, by the Holy Spirit he will make you new through and through. He will give you a heart that is no longer hell-bent on rebellion, but that earnestly seeks to follow him, that not only hears his words, but does them. This is his gift to everyone who believes. Not just intellectually believes, but truly believes. And to truly believe is to be marked by repentance and obedience. See, every single one of us has a choice to make this morning. Because a storm is coming. And the house built on your will is going to crumble with one little word. All that you've invested your life in, wiped away in an instant. My friend, your only hope on that day is to be standing on the rock of a foundation. Jesus has set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. My friend... Choose life that you may live. Choose the good life that you may flourish. Choose Jesus that you might dwell in his house forever and ever. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.